Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Escape the ordinary with green and blacks. Wildly, deliciously organic. Sponsor of the moments that made me. The Weekend Podcast. A rich, intense chocolate to savour. Welcome to The Moments That Made Me. This is the podcast that asks people not where they are now, but rather how they got there. Most interviews focus on the now. There might be a new book or a new TV show to talk about. But here we want to dig a little deeper. We are lucky to chat to a lot of fascinating people for our weekend magazine, and often we are left at the end of an interview wanting to know more. So here is our chance. Really, this podcast took shape because of our times. 2020 has been a year of deep reflection. We are forced to live in the now. We can't make plans too far ahead. So many of us are looking back. Here, we want people to do just that, to take a walk through their lives and pick the key points, good or bad, personal or professional, that shaped their lives, the moments that made them. Please do get in touch with any comments or questions. You can reach us at weekendpodcast at examiner.ie. So our very first guest is someone very special, the wonderful Sonia Lennon. I bet you say that to all your guests. Oh, no, you're the most special, Sonia. <laughs> As a nation, we got to know her and Brendan Courtney on Ortiz Off the Rails. And since then, she hasn't stopped. There's her collection with Duns, Lennon Courtney, but there's another side too. Sonia is a voice, a force for women in the workplace. First, she brought Dress for Success to Ireland, and we'll talk more about that later. It was the start of a road that would see her become a member of the Cross-Party Parliamentary Committee for Gender Equality in the Workplace. In her own words, according to her website, Sonia has successfully repositioned herself from fashion girl to broadcaster to social entrepreneur to businesswoman. She is, she says, underpinned by a drive for everyday empowerment, for inspiring stories that burst through the boundaries of fear. So welcome, Sonia Lennon. I might begin with oh, your I better own be quote. good now, Vicky. Yeah, we, <laughs> we built you up now, Sonia. Speaking of fear, like you talk about fear and, and bursting through it. Like I know this podcast is all about looking back, um, but how are you coping with the now? Because... 2020 is such a time of great unknowns and there is an awful lot of fear out there. So how have you been coping? I think I'm very clear in my head that, you know, this sort of incessant rumination about stuff beyond our control is corrosive um, and, and has no utility in our lives, really. Now, that doesn't mean it doesn't get to me, but I can kind of stick a pin in it and say, look, there's absolutely nothing we can do about this situation. Um, we're all in it together. We're, it's, it's not pretty. Um, and we just have to kind of go on a campaign of self-preservation for ourselves and those around us. I can remember the, the last time we met, it was the weekend that just before everything went into complete lockdown. I don't know if you can remember, you were down in Cork in Duns and Bishopstown to launch your dress collection. And it had been a really busy morning and my kids had camogie and there were swimming lessons and birthday parties and the calendar was full. And and we all met and it was we were quite naive, I felt. We were joking about not being able to hug or kiss. And I don't think we knew what was around the corner. And suddenly, you know, you go from this really full, busy calendar to to nothing, like the, the busyness had to stop. Did you see a benefit in that, in that kind of pause and time to think? Yeah, absolutely. And I think that 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 event that we did in Cork, we were actually acutely aware at the time that it was probably going to be our last event. There was the, there was a sense that this was perhaps t- 
tipping off the outer limits of what was going to be acceptable in the near future. And um, yeah, we were acutely aware. And I just remember at the time there were trolleys full of toilet rolls behind us and people stockpiling pasta and, you know, a really rising sense of, of fear and panic from people. So, yeah, I mean, I think I think we were aware of it at that stage. We would no sense of, of, of the um, full impact, obviously. But in terms of what I did with that time, I suppose to a certain extent we we were very busy at the beginning, even though we we came offline in terms of availability of stock um for about five weeks, kind of close enough to the beginning. So we'd had this extraordinary launch that was it beat it beat all all of our targets, all of our metrics for success. And um it was really, I mean the it was quite sad because we had spent um probably about nine months to a year redesigning how we did everything in Lennon Courtney, redesigning our design processes and restocking and re kind of quantifying our fabric libraries and redesigning how we approached print, building a new team, building a new supply base, tons of stuff behind the clothes that you would never see as a consumer, but that were really, really vital for us to to, to get on top of where we needed to be, to, to be absolute A-game. And that collection was the result of all that hard work. And it started to fly off the shelves and all of a sudden it was in darkness. So we felt, what? <laughs> We've yeah. done all this? Yeah. And so um, I suppose throughout, throughout as my career has evolved, um, and I suppose I always have been sort of strategic in my own way, it was like, okay, the one thing that an entrepreneur or a business person always says is we don't have time to think. We don't have time to reflect. We don't have time to stand on the balcony and look at the, the bird's eye view of what we have. Um, and that's what I did. I, I kind of went into this mode where I unpicked the reason for Len and Courtney, because I suppose I, I had a really acute sense what, while we were unavailable to buy, I thought, well, we're going to become available to buy again. And people are going to ask themselves, albeit subconsciously, why would I bother buying this? And we needed to ask ourselves that hard question. Why would somebody in a time of crisis um, spend their hard-earned money um, when, when, the, when there's not that much of it around on what we make? And so we, we had to dig very, very deep. And It was big picture thinking, wasn't it? Very much so. Very much so. So it was not only um, taking another look at the products themselves, but as at our purpose as a brand. And I suppose myself and Brandon had been um, increasingly involved in, in a lot of advocacy work uh, around women, empowerment, um, uh, a, a, a tackling ageism, and, and, and loads of really structural societal pieces that are important to our woman, to the woman who wears our clothes. And so we, we um, I suppose, fundamentally baked those into everything that we do and decided to shout loud and proud about all of that as a brand. And, and we've seen it. We've seen the response, um, you know, as the more honest and vulnerable and, and real we are with our customer, the more they gravitate towards us as humans, not only as customers, because when I say customer, it could be a woman who listens to the podcast for free. It could be, you know, uh, a woman who watches our videos on, on, on social, but who hasn't yet or may never buy our clothes. She's still our customer. But you're doing something else too uh, during this period of time. Tomorrow you're starting a master's. Incredible. Yes. Do you want to tell us a little bit about that? Yeah. So I left school and went straight to work. Um, and uh, there's now kind of a semi-famous uh, post that I made on LinkedIn that's, that's had like 120,000 views and everybody has a, has a comment to make on it about the fact that uh, at the tender age of 51, um, I'm going back to education with Brendan. Um, and I was overwhelmed by the amount of people who that resonated for and the amount of people who have also been on that journey. So ergo, we're not special, right? So, you know, the, 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 the luxury of educating yourself further when it's your choice. It's not some sort of societal imperative 
or expectation. It's your choice. You want to learn more. You want to dive into a subject matter um, and, and, and use that then to, to, to have a positive impact both on yourself and, and hopefully on other people. It's really inspiring, Sonia. Like you've really used lockdown in a very positive way you know, to reflect, but also to move on with your education. It's, it's incredible. Um, let's focus on... I, I should say, Vicky, yes, I, should, yes. I should say, sorry, Vicky, I should say that the, the master's is in business, equality, diversity and inclusion, and that's in IADT in Dunleary. Um, so I also have to say, for the purposes of full disclosure, that my husband is the president of IADT. So when, when myself and Brendan are being conferred, uh, it'll be my husband bestowing... <laughs> the certificates on us so my kids are already excited about that emotional roller coaster get the hankies ready for that one that'll be a beautiful day I know <laughs> speaking of your kids um you've given us the five moments that were defining in your life so far and we're going to do them chronologically so the first one was having twins having your babies that would be your first most defining moment in your life yeah, and for two reasons, really. Um, the first reason is because I would be a pretty organized person. I like I like a plan. I like to know where I'm heading and when I need to get there by. Um, and so when we were together 10 years before we decided um, to try and have a baby together, we were unbelievably lucky because I was 36 when I had the twins and I genuinely didn't know whether it was going to work or not. And, and we actually sat down together and I said, look, if if we can't make this happen, um, we we just have to accept it. You know, it, it's it's not the end of the world. We're fine. Um, I'm not going to let that, that quest define who we are. Now, it, very easy to say when, when you're not on that quest, right? But that was where my head was at at the time. And maybe that was a little insurance policy for my subconscious around, you know, it's okay if this doesn't happen. But anyway, happen it did, literally, first try out of the traps. And uh, so we were delighted, overwhelmed. Um, and then when it got to the 20-week scan... So at this stage, you didn't realise that there were two? No. So halfway through my pregnancy, I found out that there were two babies inside me by the nurse saying, there's your two babies there. Can you see them both? <laughs> and I was like, what are you talking about? And why does it look like a mirror image? <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> so, yeah, it was pretty shocking. Um, I mean, fundamentally, uh, physically and psychologically shocking. Like the blood drained from my face for a full 10 days. Um, just because all the plans were out the window. It was a sucker punch. It was the lack of control, I'm guessing, for such an organized person. That must be oh, an absolute definitely. killer. Definitely. Definitely. Yeah, it was, yeah, everything that you thought was going to be is now double or something else completely. Um, so it took, it, took me, it took me a while to compose myself and to get on with things. But, you know, you do. And when they arrived, like, how was it when they came trying to manage two babies? It must have been incredibly difficult. There should be a medal given to every mum of twins. Well, you know, as somebody said to me on the street, are they twins? And I said, yeah. And she said, very common, aren't they? <laughs> I said, yes, twins are very common. Thank you for putting it like that. <laughs> so, um, yeah, you know, the, the, the rate of twin births has, has more than doubled um, as we have better nutrition, as we have our children later in life. So, you know, twins, yeah, it's a bit tough and I can't really remember what I did in the first year. Um, it's a bit of a blur, but, you know, you don't get a medal for twins anymore. Triplets, maybe. You, maybe. Get, a, you get a medal Quals. for triplets. <laughs> <laughs> Were you ever tempted then, like at that stage, you had a really successful business as a stylist. And did you, and I hate using the word juggle because women are only ever asked about the juggle. I don't think I've ever heard an interview where a man is asked about how they juggled work. Were you ever tempted to walk away? I'm reading Catelyn Moran's book at the moment and she's, urging women if they do want to work to try and ride out the baby years because it's a really tough time but at the end of it all you you will be ready to to be in that workplace did you were you ever tempted to to walk away from it honestly no um because it just never occurred to me but what's worth bearing in mind is that um i have been a sort of a sole agent since my early 20s so 
I've always created the culture and the structure of how I work. So um, although there's always somebody that has to be tap danced for, at least you can do it in your own way. So um, when the twins were three months old, uh, we got somebody into the house who is still a wonderful family friend. Um, she's she's a, an amazing mum herself now, twice over. Um, and she, uh, literally, we were both as green as each other. We kind of looked at each other dead-eyed as she walked through the door. We didn't have a clue what we were doing, but it was okay. And 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 she is now, believe it or not, uh, an amazing uh, parenting consultant. And she, she teaches people how to um, enact respectful parenting through her um, her channels as hands-off parents and and her kids are amazing and and I suppose for me it was about okay back to the organizational piece let's put the logistic in place that allows me to continue doing what I need to do um, and for me that was work obviously parenting is 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 a massive part of who I am but they're people, they're my people, but what defines me is is my work and my purpose in that regard. So you had the support and the structures in place. You made sure that you were equipped to keep well, going with that. I, 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 yeah, we paid for the support. And yeah. to be honest, it's, it's a case of if you're going to do it, if you're going to have kids and work, you need primary support, secondary support and tertiary support. So when, you know, when things fall apart a little bit, the second level kicks in when things fall apart a lot the third level kicks in because you know something will always blindside you and your childcare will always implode eventually so you know I suppose I'm talking you're talking to the mums and the dads the parents who are trying to manage right now where childcare is so difficult and people kids are have been homeschooled for so long I suppose it's it's all about organization as yours as you say yeah but it's also about um if if you are in a good place and 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 plenty aren't but if you are in a even a moderately good place that's an opportunity to make it a better place and i know it's really difficult and i would not like to have been the mother of toddlers in this environment uh, that that can't be pretty um but but it is an opportunity for us to spend more time with our families now if if that's a challenge at the best of times it's going to be even more challenging now but if if there's if there's positives around that, that they can be shored up. Your second defining moment, the second moment that made you, Sonia, uh, it was choosing to accept the job of presenter of Off the Rails. Now, I read that first in your email and I thought, really? Most people would absolutely bite someone's hand off for an opportunity to present, you know, a primetime RTE show. And at that stage, you know, it, it, it was a brand that existed so what were your reasons for for being hesitant about that? So I started, just to go forward before I go back, I started off the rails in, let's say, July of 2008, um, before everything collapsed. And I turned 40 that December. So I was just coming up to my 40th birthday. I had spent 20 years as a very successful commercial stylist um, working on uh, fashion campaigns, TV commercials, movies, theatre productions, music videos, uh, flying to Miami Beach, going to Marseille to advertise butter. Uh, Miami Beach was underwear. Like, I mean, it was just, it, it was great, great, great fun. And it was the halcyon days. It was when advertising was riding high. The budgets were big. It's not like that anymore. It sounds like Mad Men, um, And so I had... Oh, totally. I mean, it was amazing. We we did incredible things. Um, there's one particular um, production company that, I mean, we became a, a, like a band of pirates, crazy hedonistic pirates. And we ended up, you know, hiring a castle for our Christmas party just because we all thought we were fabulous, you know. And anyway, that, that was the time that was. Um, I suppose when I was asked to present Off the Rails, um, I was also being asked to walk away from that to to potentially cut ties with those um, clients and friends, um, to let somebody else hungry coming beneath me sweep them up, um, and to take a risk on a brand new career um, that that I wasn't sure about. Not that I not that I doubted my ability uh, to do the job. I really hadn't. I had no fear or anxiety around that. My fear was that 
um, my professional reputation would be dumbed down and that I would be perceived as some sort of fashion bimbo. You used the word trivialise. You didn't want to trivialise your intellect. That was the exact phrase you used. But I know you're not saying there that you think fashion is something trivial because I've heard you have an amazing conversation with Louise O'Neill where you talked about, you know, the power of a lipstick, that it's okay to like makeup, it's okay to to want to dress up and you can still be a feminist. Oh, I believe, I believe in, I've seen firsthand, um, I live it every day, but the power that those trimmings can give us to to feel equipped um, for a hostile environment, that cannot be underplayed. Um, and really that was not my... Uh, my angle my angle was more that um I was used to using my gut and my instinct and my sort of lay psychology to 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 make situations good and um, to keep clients happy uh to 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 sell an idea that I knew was right even though it could potentially take people out of their comfort zone so it was about that um harnessing that power and impact and and would I be able to do that on a medium like television that was my worry and the thing is that you did do it because you totally changed the format it became very much uh, there was a real psychology to the show there was it, I, I remember loving it. it it was makeovers it was getting inside people's heads it was it was a lot more than just the clothes uh, so you did bring you did bring yourself very much yeah, into I that mean, show, didn't you? Listen, I, I'm making myself sound like a cross between uh, Stephen Hawking and, uh, you know, Lucian Freud here. <laughs> uh, you know, that's not the point. This is armchair stuff, but I love it, you know. And for us, uh, myself and Brandon, we said, uh, if we're going to do this show, we are going to, uh, we need to have final say on the candidates. The ca- this can't be just about um, a woman who wants a pamper day can't be about that there has to be a draw there has to be a hook for the audience there has to be a payoff for the woman herself and I suppose that's where we um you know we worked with those women each of them for probably three weeks to a month um to do each show it was it was quite uh drawn out I mean there was there was one one girl one young woman who um I'll never forget it she was so um emotionally repressed in herself and she and it was a result of a relationship trauma where she had been um she'd been psychologically bullied and she'd been whittled down um and she hated herself and and when I went shopping with her she um it's no longer there anymore but monsoon on Grafton Street we were upstairs upstairs was was shut the day we went in and we were using the fitting room upstairs we brought a load of stuff up and uh she tried on her first outfit and I said, look at yourself in the mirror. And she could not bring her eyes to the mirror. And I, I said, you're, you're going to have to look at yourself. And she couldn't do it. And, and she tried to train her eyes on her own image and she couldn't do it. And look, I said to her, you know, you look really beautiful. And she couldn't allow herself to see that. And I ended up, I mean, I don't know where it came from. Some, some, gut instinct and I said you've got you've got to actually release this because it's not fair on you and I said you just scream <laughs> and I said you, you just scream let it out because you're blocked and the first scream came out it was like ah. <laughs> and the next one came out it was a little bit louder a little bit louder and I said no you know you're gonna have to burst a light bulb here just let it out well she roared I'm sure the people downstairs in the shop must have thought there was a murder going on upstairs she roared and wailed like a banshee and when she'd done it she could look in the mirror and that's just a little thing you know but you can see when somebody is so blocked I mean that's that that they're not willing to be in any way forgiving to themselves um and yeah, just things like that that were just really kind of amazing moments. But that's more than just armchair TV. That's that's really, that's making a difference, you know, and it's showing women at home. Now that didn't make it on air. Yeah, I mean, and yeah. that's the funny thing. No, yeah. None of those pivotal pieces, they, they, that wasn't about TV, although it would have been TV mm. gold. That was about the process. It's about her. Can I ask you then about Brendan? Because obviously the two of you are he's your work husband isn't he your friends you design together yeah. I yeah. 
like it, it might I assumed that you guys had come to RTE together and went, hey, listen, we've got this great idea for a show, but ye were put together. Like it was one or two producers must have seen you guys and thought, oh yeah, they'd work. I find that quite incredible because... Oh, we were we were the fashion equivalent of a boy band. Like we wow. were manufactured. It's incredible. Um, and it just so happened that it, the chemistry worked. Um and we just got each other. We just, we re- first of all, we really respected each other's body of work before we came together. Um, I knew his work through Wanderlust and, you know, he'd been over in the UK. He, he had done Anton Deck and, and he was a really accomplished, uh, polished broadcaster. And he knew my work as a fashion, fashion stylist and was asking all his um fabulous queens you know what about Sonia Lennon what are and they were like oh my god she's never gonna do off the rails <laughs> so um they were, they were nearly right <laughs> could you have imagined you know how many years later you'd be designing a collection together you know and it's, it goes beyond clothes as you say everything as you described there's the podcast doing a doing a master's together like was that did, did you kind of know from the minute you got working with them there's something here my mum, when we, when we, so we started, we went on air in the September of 2008, me as an absolute rookie broadcaster. In October, I was in the RDS uh, Simmons Court uh, doing a live show to four and a half thousand people. Um, anyway, that was fine. That, that worked. Uh, but my mum came to the show to, to Off the Rails Live and um, Brendan was asked to to step into a photograph because he would have been much more well known than I was uh, I was the new kid and uh, so some woman said Brendan Brendan can I take your photograph and he said absolutely and he reached his arm back and he pulled me into the photograph even though I hadn't been asked for and my mother said to me he's a gentleman and he is a gentleman he is a gentleman and he is um a feminist and he is uh, a passionate, creative human. Uh, honestly, we, we're, we're so lucky. We've had to work because, you know, uh, you don't stay partners, business partners and friends for 11, nearly 12 years and not have, you know, splinters. Of course you do. But the fundamentals of us respecting and trusting each other, and we really do trust each other, um, that, that has always been at the core of it. And the trust, funny, the trust happened very early on um, and it was uh, a third party who was kind of stirring it. We didn't know each other very well um, and somebody was was trying to cause trouble just for the crack, you know, and um, uh, there was a kind of an untruth being touted, um, stupid, petty stuff, but I, I knew it was happening um, and I could see it happening and uh, I was at home with Dave the kids had probably just gone up to bed. It was a Wednesday night. It was about eight o'clock. We'd had our dinner. And I said, Dave, um, it's really niggling at me. I know Brendan is down in Panty Bar. I'm going down. And I got up from the couch and went down to Panty Bar, tapped him on the shoulder. And I said, look, I want you to know one thing. Anything that I do in relation to you or to us is only ever going to be for your, my and our benefit. I will never undermine that. And we just hugged like long lost friends. And, and really that became a sort of a, a North Star for us that we, we knew that. We knew that it was never going to be about one-upmanship. It was never going to be about ego. And that's what makes it so wonderful. Green and Blacks. Wildly, deliciously organic. A selection of ethically sourced flavours combined with a rich cocoa intensity. You've spoken in the past too about the importance of bringing men along with us on the journey in terms of equality in the workplace. We did that amazing IE Style Live event in Cork City Hall last year and it was very much, the target audience was women and Louise O'Neill was there and we talked about feminism and we talked about lipstick, we talked about absolutely the big things and the small things. And the one thing you said was that to everyone in the audience was, listen, next year, let's bring a man into this room, let's bring a, a, a guy in here to talk about all of these issues, all about the the inequality that's out there. We need to bring men with us on, on the journey. And it sounds like that's what you and Brendan have, isn't it? Yeah, totally, totally. Um, 
you know, it, it, it was slightly more by accident than by design, but it, um, it does give us uh, quite a different viewpoint. And we're talking cheese as well, you know, we're, we're very, very diff- different. Um, you know, he's, he, he will say himself, he's very reactive um, less so now than he used to be. I'm very assimilatory. Like I, I need to process and I don't feel in a hurry to give a response until I'm, you know, crystal clear what that response should be. Um, but that's why we work together. I tell you, we're a tag team on negotiations. That's for sure. The next moment that you've identified is bringing Dress for Success to Ireland. And it's you must tell us a little bit about what that's, you know, what Dress for Success is, but it is it is very connected to everything you were doing in Off the Rails in terms of the psychology and what you just described of that amazing story in Monsoon and Grafton Street. It's all, there's a thread to to all these moments that, that you've chosen for us. Um, so when did you bring Dress for Success to Ireland? So what happened was when, when I found myself presenting one of RT's primetime shows, uh, all of a sudden I was fielding calls from charities and nonprofits asking, would I emcee this event, uh, be an ambassador for this charity, do this, do that, do the other. And, um, you know, there were some amazing charities who contacted me, but I felt that firstly, I had an obligation to use my profile for some sort of social impact um but secondly that I needed it to be considered and if I was going to do it that I would only do it for a cause that really mattered to me and that I could get behind and be passionate about and my initial response was that it it should be around children um I I was a mum of young twins and and for me the ultimate injustice is any harm done to children um and um I read about Dress for Success, the London office, which was celebrating 10 years at the time. And so Dress for Success is an organisation that helps women uh, to to be successful in a job interview. So uh, we give them the clothing to present themselves appropriately at interview. Um, and we also give them the, the skills so they, the, you know, they can package the outside and they can package the message appropriately, um, particularly a, a, an increasing amount of, of returners who have, you know, left the workforce, as you said, to go and raise a family, and um, the sense of disconnection and and purposelessness that those women feel is 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 really unjust because actually to run a home and to raise a family, um, that they're all transferable skills that are hugely important in any workplace. So um it's it's not only about dressing her to look great it's about giving her the confidence to 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 propel herself through that interview and beyond so we do a lot of um mentorship programs financial literacy courses peer networking and uh, loads and loads of things that that help that woman once she comes to us to keep on an upward incline so that she she really gets to be um financially uh, sustainable and independent for her and for her family and and I suppose the ripple effect of that then within communities is that that woman becomes a visible role model for the next generation for her sisters and her cousins and, and all of a sudden people can see particularly in areas where there is you know systemic unemployment well you know if Mary can do it um, may, maybe I can do it too and if mom can do it well why wouldn't I do it instead of you know, um, being sort of perpetually unemployed as a way of life, that actually the, the, the power given to you by that independence is without parallel. It's real practical help, so, isn't it? It's taking the fear out of the situation again. It's all about fear, isn't it? And to be honest with you, I'm only interested in practical things. I think that's probably the, the gravestone at the end of it is I, I don't want to know about the theory. I don't know about what would be nice to have, but impossible to get. I want to know how do we get from A to B right now? And, and what can we do to accelerate that? Um, and so it's, it, it always has to be practical, but that, I suppose the, the one thing about dress for success, there's a, there's a sort of a, a, a scattering of fairy dust over it in some way. And I can't quite describe it except that I'm pretty sure that the volunteers get at least as much out of the experience as the clients do. I'm pretty sure, in fact, I know categorically that I would not have gone on to create other organizations and businesses uh, 
without having developed the muscle through dress for success and the confidence through dress for success to do that. I, I, I needed dress for success um, to show me that it was possible, even though I was absolutely coasting on ignorance. I had never written a business plan before. Um, I'd never been an employer before. I'd never been a leaseholder before. I'd never had an advisory board. I'd never fundraised before. So all of these new skills um, were required of me to make this a success. And it didn't take a genius to figure out that it could, they could be repurposed for other uses. Once, once you had proved to yourself that you could do them, well, they're pretty transferable too. It was a grueling process t- to bring it to Ireland, wasn't it? Like it wasn't just a straightforward, I'm taking, I'm, br- I'm bringing this here, bring it tomorrow. There was, <laughs> no. there was a lot of work. It, it took it took about a year to be granted the license. So the uh, the worldwide organization is based in New York and there's about 140 offices around the world. Um, and like any good franchise, you need to be sure that um, your, your license holder is fit for the job. Um, but in the in the nonprofit sector, you need to be even more sure that they're not going to topple over at the slightest prod. Um, so I, I, I think on reflection that that whole process was a, a test of tenacity more than anything else. And those learnings then would definitely are connected to the next moment that you've chosen, which is being invited to join the board you can't afford. Like th- there was definite learnings that, that came through, weren't there? Yeah, so um, the board you can't afford is the kind of nickname of uh, a group of uh, 11 women, including myself, who meet every 12 weeks, um, normally physically, but not at the moment. Um, And we are mainly entrepreneurs. We have a couple of intrapreneurs, so very, very entrepreneurial women within a corporate environment. Um, And... It is the most incredible brain pool, uh, no holes barred, trusted network of support than that I could possibly imagine. And if you could imagine um, a group of the most intelligent, experienced, networked cheerleaders who are only interested in you unlocking your best potential, that's what they are. The, I've described you as a voice for women and you are, you're a force for women. You, you speak for every woman. I'm just interested to know where that came from. Was it something that you had from when you were a small girl? Was it something you grew up with or was it more the inequalities that are out there? Did you wake up to them as you, as you got older, you know, and, and, and had more life experience? So I, I was born into a really beautiful, um, home and family and environment. I grew up in Malahide. I I trotted barefoot to the beach every summer day. Um, my parents are amazing people. Um, my mom has dementia now and she's in residential care. She's still like the star of the show in there. She's amazing. Um, and as is my dad. Uh, my mom always worked. So she was um, an Aer Lingus uh, air hostess and then she left for a while when she had myself and my sister Ashling, and then she went back and then she became a tour guide and so she always worked I always had a neighbor's house that I would go to who was my other mummy of the moment who would mind me after school until my dad or my mum got back from work so that was my normality and um, my mum's sort of stock phrases her two calling cards were always have your running away money so, you know, that, that's your, that, they're your options. If you don't have your running away money, you don't have any options. So always have that. And the other one was that if you're not part of the revenue, you're not part of the decision-making process. And I think those tenets drilled into you over time. And, and, and she didn't just say it, she lived it. So she, she had her own money. She was independent and, and she had choices and she could choose to stay or choose to go. And, and, you know, why wouldn't she choose to stay um, with my gorgeous dad? But, you know, I, that was a lesson and it was a kind of, um, it was a very powerful one and, and I, I took it to heart. It was only, I suppose, as Dress for Success kind of unfolded, um, I then began to realise that 
the women who I was talking to in in the corporate landscape and in the sort of employee landscape were facing challenges that they weren't expecting. So we were equipping them to get the job, get back into work. But hang on a second, there are invisible landmines that you didn't know existed that are going to explode you along the way. And I suppose I wasn't aware of that because I've never been um, in in that environment. So I needed to learn them from the women um, who, who I was engaging with. And once, once I really understood that and, and read up on it more... I, I felt this obligation to um, to do something about that for those women, for the over 3,000 women that we've equipped back into the workplace. We now need to use our voice to advocate to make the workplace a more equal place for them to be so that they really can succeed and meet their potential. Um, and, and that's really where the whole Work Equal ca- campaign came in, um, which is four years old now, which is hard to believe because when it first launched... Uh, we were laughed out of town. People thought we were absolutely taking the mickey saying that there was a gender pay gap. Um, I mean, it was kind of funny in retrospect, but, uh, and I don't really remember getting that upset about it at the time. I, I could have, um, because, uh, because it was, it was annoying that, that you had a campaign and people weren't taking it seriously. But cut to, you know, three years on on that campaign and we're invited to the European Parliament by the FEM Committee, sitting on the cross-party uh, parliamentary committee in the Oireachtas, um, you know, the Taoiseach opening, the Work Equal Conference, uh, Leo Varadkar at the time, last November. Um, and, and, and suddenly I'm writing submission documents into government around um, priority policies that should be enacted to, to level the playing field. So... Um, and again, Sonia, it's tangible. It's you're giving yeah. really practical advice. It's not aspirational. It's things that can actually make change. That's that's what's so incredible about it. And it's funny, Professor Michelle Miller of NUIG and myself wrote that document together. And she she said, as an academic, to be briefed to work on a piece of literature that uh, that had to be practical was actually quite challenging because in the world of academia, quite often you're dealing with, you know, the theoretical and the unattainable. And 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 we worked together to create something that could be a dragon, a policy drag and drop. Just do it. Now, unfortunately, childcare got a little bit left behind in this budget, but um, I, I do I do think it is it is key. And um, not to go off on a tangent, um, but I know in in. Um, in Iceland, for example, who, that that is the most gender equal um, territory in the world, and um, their universal uh, free childcare came about as a as a um, a metropolitan initiative rather than a government initiative. It was actually the mayor of Reykjavik who brought in territory ring fenced childcare in Reykjavik to keep workers there, and then every other um, administration followed suit. To, to keep their competitive edge. So so maybe there's another way to do this. Maybe it's not the government imp- implementing, but maybe it's the county council saying, well, look, we want to be the best county council for you. So we're going to implement universal, sustainable, good quality, free childcare for our citizens um, and, and, and set the bar high. But it's definitely, it's the chink. It's the one thing that is is just needs a lot of attention right now. And maybe now isn't the time because there's so much else going on. But I would like to think that the policymakers and the power brokers come to it very soon. And going back to your own personal situation, you've talked about your twins as being a gender experiment because you've got your girl and your boy and they're teenagers now. Um, in terms of raising them and raising your yeah. daughter and also raising your son, um, do you, do you, is it, do you have a, 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 a way of speaking to them in terms of engaging them with equalities and inequalities? How do you, how do you manage that? Um, I think, I think what's important to me is that first and foremost, I respect them, um, as humans. And really the only difference between a teenager and an adult, apart from the hormones, um, is knowledge and experience. Like they're 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 pretty much fully formed as entities at this stage. Um, and I know I know viewpoints can be more 
um, black and white at that stage because I remember being that. I remember saying, no, not that way, this way. Whereas actually, as you get older, you realize that there's so much gray space in between. Um, there, look, I, I, don't have to, I don't have to ram it down their throats. Um, they see what's happening. Um, they, come, they came to the Work Equal Conference. They contributed to, to roundtable discussions in the working group. Um, they, they see it. They see it. They, they live in a home where, um, you know, equality is very important. So it's, it, you know, it, it's simple things. It's, it's, no, it's no particular gender body's job to put the bins out. You know, we all put the bins out. We may not like it, but, um, but, but anybody can do that because you don't have to be a man or a woman to do that. Um, but you, you, you are forced to think because I, I don't know um, if you have done the, uh, the, the Harvard implicit bias test, which I, I really recommend everybody does. It's, it's a, a quick fire test on your own, on your own sub, uncon, subconscious biases. Um, and, and it's incredible how much, um, how much bias we carry with us, even if we <laughs> believe that we believe in equality it's there. It's in. It's in our our legacy makeup. It's in our DNA, um, and and we we have we have to challenge ourselves on that on a day to day basis. The last um, moment that you've chosen is something very personal, and and thank you for for speaking about it. I'm sure there are many people in a in a similar situation at the moment. Um, it was your mum and the decision to uh, put her into residential care because um, she has dementia. A very difficult time for you. Yeah. So, yeah. So uh, she is four months in residential care now, and I suppose the di- the really difficult part for us um, was what my dad had to go through to get to that point. First of all, from sort of a, um, a, a a responsibility, a physical responsibility to her and her well-being within the home, and the two of them were in lockdown. Um, as her dementia was uh, progressing rapidly, um, really because of the lack of stimulation. Um, and, and we see that now in the home, and I, I'll come to that, but um, somebody with dementia needs to feel purposeful. And that's very difficult when, um, when the person caring for you is so focused on the functions of that and the practicalities of that there's there's no there's no human capacity left to have a laugh or have a dance because you're wiped out you're 24 7 caring for somebody who can't care for themselves you're certainly not in the humor for a bit of giddiness um and so I think my dad just it was a very long process for him to um to get to the point where he thought that that was the best thing to do because he felt he was failing her. And I think that that's very common um, in partnerships where one person uh, has to go into residential care. It's seen as a betrayal um, and as potentially a weakness. Um, whereas actually nothing could have been further from the truth. Um, she is in an amazing home uh, with incredible staff. I don't know how they do it, to be honest with you. Um, but she does the hoochie cooch up and down the corridors. She chats and she sings and she dances and she wears bejeweled hairbands and she loves her bling and she is happy. She is happy and she's stimulated and she's minded all the time by people who have the energy to do that. Um, and, and it took a very long time for my dad to um, accept that, accept that she was better there um, and happier there and, and that it was okay. Um, and, and really for myself and Ashley, we're an incredibly close family. It was only when dad said, not too long ago, I feel such a relief that we literally exhaled. It was like, it's okay. She's okay. He's okay. So, but I, I think until you go through that journey and somebody has to walk that loved one through the door of that facility, somebody has to be, guess who that was? Me. 
<laughs> so somebody has to be, uh, you know, Mrs. Iron Drawers and, and do that task. Wondering, is your mom going to flip out and start lashing out and going, what are you doing to me? Um, which she didn't do. Um, it's awful. And, and then there's the settling in period, which in our case took about three or four weeks um, of complete, you know, um, disorientation, um, sadness, tears. But it, 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 it settles and she is settled and she is happy. Um, but it's brought us much closer. And did COVID make it harder, Sonia? Yeah, of course it did. Of course it did, because the circumstances in which we could visit were were contracted. And yeah, but it was incredibly intense. But it, it has brought us closer. That I have no doubt about that. Um, myself and Ash and Dad, um, we're, yeah, we're, we're very, very tight. And, you know, it's it's so very sad now that, you know, Dad once again is on his own. Um, so we, we just have to get through this. Sonia, thank you so much of everything you've spoken about. Today is... Oh, we have to end oh, on something. No. We have to end on something good. We have to end on something good. The one thing we didn't touch on, and this I'll make this really short. Um, I'm a co-founder of Lift Ireland, Leading Ireland's Future Together, which is about um, equipping people with the platform and the tools to raise their own levels of leadership in how they lead themselves and others around them. Last night, we had about 250 people um, on Zoom for the Lift Leadership Award. We had 11 winners um, and uh, four uh, shortlisted nominees in each category. Extraordinary people from the most diverse backgrounds, everything from transition year kids to school principals to Munster Rugby to corporates. Um, amazing, amazing. P- people are amazing. And if you give them the tools to be amazing, they shine. Sonia, thank you. Thank you for being a voice for for every woman out there. Thank you for sharing all your moments that made you. Thanks, Vicky. This podcast was recorded and edited by JJ Vernon. Thanks to our guest, Sonia Lennon, for sharing the moments that made her. And thank you too for listening. See you next time. the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.